This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. If I haven't had uh, the privilege of meeting you, I am Ronnie. And uh, there are a lot of parties and activities that compete for our attention this time of year. So it's good for us to be resolute in our devotion to Jesus and to his bride, right, the church. So uh, because what what we need this Christmas is not another gift. It's not another party. It's Jesus himself. So for the last two weeks, we have taken passages from the Bible that help us trace the storyline of Emmanuel, God with us. And as we have said that when Jesus was born, the incarnation, the the very first Christmas, that was the the most dramatic expression of God with us. And God being with his people is, you guys, the storyline of the whole Bible. It starts with God and man together. It ends with God and man together. And here we are with Jesus being born. Now, during the Christmas season... It's our impulse, our inclination to forget the story because we have a holiday. But it's, remember, it's important to remember that we have the holiday because of this story. We've got to understand the story if we are to love Jesus. So each Sunday, we come to do what? To worship Jesus. In fact, that's what we do every day. But why? Why should we worship this man? Why should we dedicate our very lives to worshiping this man. Now, answering that question has to be at the very core of your life. And here's why. It's because Christianity is a massive interruption. It interrupts your life, right? It interrupts how you spend your time and money. It it interrupts your idea of relationships. In fact, Christmas is about how how, how God interrupted the affairs of mankind. See, the world existed in a certain way, and then God stepped into that world in the form of a God baby. And so for this reason, he was called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, in the 90s, some of you will know this, there was this terribly cheesy song by uh, uh, an artist named Bette Midler. She wrote a song called From a Distance. And this song has this basic message that God is watching you and God is watching me from a distance. So Bet's title for God would be something like this, God in our vicinity or God above us. And let me just say, that would be an adequate title for the God of any other religion, but it does not work for Jesus. Jesus came. Jesus didn't throw a book from heaven He was one of us. He interrupted history. He walked among us. And this, if I'm right about this, the Bible's right about this, it changes everything. See, Christianity is not a search for private religion or self-improvement. Christianity is a search for truth. And I'm talking universal truth. And Christians are committed to finding truth no matter where it leads us, even if it's hard And we have indeed found truth. Truth was a king, and he walked among us, and his name was Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins, as we're going to learn this morning. And this is the very heart of Christmas. This is why we take a break from our parties and presents. This is why we worship him. 
because he saves messed up people like us. Private religion brings no help to anyone. We need something. Listen, we need something as real as our pain. See, Christmas, true Christmas, is for the mother who's grieving over the loss of her child. I saw that this week. Christmas is for the man whose body is wrecked with cancer, and he can't imagine living long enough to get to next Christmas. Christmas is for the daughter whose father never told her that she was beautiful. Christmas is for the guy who medicates his loneliness by getting as many likes as he can on Instagram or Facebook. Christmas is for the son whose father was quick to critique him and slow to hug him. Christmas is for prostitutes and adulterers and people in the adult industry. Christmas is for the college students who can't wait to leave their family party to get drunk, to forget about the dysfunction and the lies in their family. Christmas is for the son who squandered the family fortune and the family name, and he really wants to come home, but he can't imagine being embraced by his parents once again. Christmas is for the parents who are watching their adult children's marriages fall to pieces. Christmas is for the people who have made a mess of their lives. Christmas is for me, and it's for you. You get it? You get it? We need truth. We don't need some mythology, some superstition, or private religion. Pain is real, and so we need something as real as that. And in this way, the Bible's really stubborn, right? It doesn't allow us to pick our version of religion that we want. It limits how we think about Jesus. In the Bible, the presence of the God of the universe is equated to Jesus' presence on earth. Imagine that. Emmanuel, God with us. So our passage this morning that we're going to study, we're going to read here. It's the famous portion of the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, as an author, he had this burden to prove that Jesus was indeed the Christ, that he was God incarnate. He was burdened to prove that Jesus was more real than our problems and our pain and our sadness. And let me just say that, having studied this passage, there are like five sermons I could preach here, but I'm going to limit what I say here to keep my, my sermons short, we're going to look at this particular issue of uh, giving him a name, right? So the angel Gabriel, he came to Joseph, and he told him that the baby in the womb of Mary, that that baby's name would be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, right? And so there's kind of two aspects that we're going to consider as we study this. Our, our outline for this morning will be the process of giving a name, and then the significance of that name. So that's going to be what directs our study this morning. With that, would you, in reverence to God's word, would you stand with me? And here now, the very best part of the whole sermon. This is Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Hold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. So one of the most basic responsibilities of being a parent is naming your child, right? This is usually a pretty exciting task, unless you have to use the family name Hubert, right? And then you're, this is no fun. I'm kidding. Uh, sorry, Hubert. Uh, so Amanda and I, right, we looked at hundreds of names before we decided on the names of our children. Uh, naming a child is just very basic. But guess what happens to Joseph and Mary? They did not get to choose the name, right? The angel told them the name of their child. Look there, you'll see it in verse 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to them saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear. That which is conceived in your wife is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You, Joseph, will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Now, isn't that a weird thing to happen? So let me, help, let, me, let me help you understand how, uh, these na- how giving names functioned in the ancient world. And this is what all the commentaries will tell you, right? A person in the ancient world that gives a name to something or to someone is not the owner of the thing. It's not. Owners never manage the stuff that they own. So for instance, in the book of Genesis, God brings all the animals in front of Adam, Right? God is the owner of all of creation, but he expects Adam, that he will, that Adam will be the manager or the steward of the creation. And so God brings all the animals in front of Adam, and then Adam names them. So Adam's their manager. He's not the owner, right? He's just the steward of them. He has authority over them, but he's not their owner, right? Let me, like, this shouldn't be terribly hard for us to understand, even in our modern day. We have modern parallels uh, even in this church, we have people in the finance industry. So, for instance, there are men and women who are skilled in building financial portfolios. Uh, a financial consultant doesn't, doesn't own the money, right? But he does have authority over the money. The money, of course, belongs to the owner. So his job is to make the money increase, right? He looks at, he looks at the portfolio. He cares for it. He envisions potential, and he helps it to flourish, Right? Now, just as a side note, this one's free. So Adam names his wife, right? He gives her the name Eve. He does not own her, right? She belongs to the Lord, but he is charged to envision her beautiful potential and help her to 
help her to live into her deepest purposes. That is, to, for her to realize or to fulfill her God-given glory. That's a, one of the, uh, that's a husband's, one of the husband's primary roles and jobs. Not to oppress his wife, right? Not, not to have a servant, but to sacrificially serve her so that she becomes everything that God designed her for, right? Now, in a similar way, parents name their children, right? We don't own our children, right? Parents, we don't own our children. They belong to the Lord, but we are in charge of developing them and helping them to flourish and to become everything that God has designed them for. So when we look at the fact that Mary and Joseph were not allowed to name Jesus, we realize that something's going on here, right? Jesus came with a pre-decided name. See, Jesus is the God-man, and Joseph and Mary were never intended to manage Jesus. I mean, Odie mostly, uh, uh, obviously he respects his parents, right? He honors them, but you know what he mostly does? And you read this all throughout the Gospels. He confounds them. Like, there's a ton of stories about that. They must have had a really difficult job, right? I am convinced that they are the only parents who are parented by their child. Right? Y'all follow that? Here's the point. Here's the point, you guys. We never manage Jesus. He manages us. Not even Mary and Joseph were charged with developing Jesus. Jesus develops them. Now listen, when Jesus comes into your life, he changes you and he develops you. When he comes into your life, you, you never know what's going to happen because Christianity is not a self-help program. Jesus is not your concierge. Jesus does not exist to make you rich. He doesn't even exist to make you happy. Jesus comes to do something in your life, to change you. Now, if what I'm saying right now sounds weird to you and you've been in church for a while, dare I say it's because you've not properly understood and meditated on the gospel. Perhaps you have thought about it in terms of private religion that's meant, exists to give you peace. That's a very therapeutic rendering of Jesus, but it is more, it is about the universal truth of a God-man who's come to restore you and me to our God-given design through our faith and loyalty to him. My pastor in St. Louis, he would say, he's basically using C.S. Lewis telling the story, but he, he says, imagine you own a house and, uh, and you see that it has some problems that need to be fixed up. You, you, um, you don't know how to do house maintenance, so you ask a construction worker or a contractor to come in and do a few repairs. And at first, he does exactly what you would expect, right? He, he plugs up the leaky roof. He repairs the broken window. He patches up a few holes in the wall. You're happy about it because, you know, there were some problems that needed a little bit of tension. But then one day, you come home. You come home from work, and you realize that something big is starting to happen. The construction worker has knocked out three walls, right? He's starting to move light switches. In the back, there's scaffolding because he's building this beautiful tower. He's not even asking your permission. He, you, you start seeing this, this new addition on the other side of the house with this majestic atrium in this magnificent garden. See, you, you wanted a small little secure cottage, but he 
wanted a breathtaking palace. Jesus, and he's not asking you for permission. This is what Jesus does. He's not here simply to give you peace and just fix a few problems. He wants to manage you. He wants to develop you. He wants to overtake you with a new construction. Listening, listen, guys, following Jesus is an adventure, but be warned. Christianity is not about having Jesus comfortably serve you. He's not here to make your wildest dreams come true. You don't manage Jesus or you don't tame him. Don't you see? Because he's the Lord. He is God with us. Now, I know that. That might sound a little scary. It should if you're listening carefully anyway. I want you to understand, though, in the long run, nothing is more dangerous than to ignore him. Nothing is more dangerous than to ignore him. Now, in the short run, nothing is more dangerous than to obey him. Because who, who knows what he's going to ask you to do, right? I mean, he's going to radically change your life. He, he might tell you to do something that you just didn't. That's not the script you would have written for yourself. Because some of you are thinking, if I, if I really commit my life to Jesus, I'm afraid that he is going to ask me to do things that I don't want to do. Of course he will. He's the Lord. He is not tame. But you say, but I'm afraid that God won't answer my prayers or, or give me what I want. Of course he won't. You don't name the Lord. He names you. He comes to you. He changes you. He develops you. He changes your dreams. And he takes you on an adventure, possibly a dangerous one. Possibly a dangerous one. This is a massive interruption to our personal dreams and longings. But this is what we were made for. All right, that's the first issue. Now, so, so we looked at God getting a name, all right? We don't name him, he names us. Let's turn our attention to the second part of this text. It's the significance. So we, not just the process of the name, but the significance of the name. And, and let me just say, as I prepared for this, I am indebted to uh, first Ed Clowney and then Tim Keller for helping me to see something in this text that I didn't see before. So the first thing to understand about this name Jesus is that it was a very common name, and it was common particularly in Israel. So the name Jesus comes from the Old Testament book called Joshua. So Joshua was one of Moses' greatest generals who was instrumental in getting the children of Israel into the promised land. He's a very popular figure, so many people named their children Joshua. So Joshua is just the Hebrew version of the name Jesus, which of course appears in the Greek in the New Testament. So Joshua in the Old Testament was originally named Hosea or Hosea as we say. But Moses, of course, you see this in Numbers 13, he changes his name to Joshua and Hosea means salvation, but the meaning changes to salvation is of the Lord when it takes its form Joshua, right? Or Yeshua, you'll hear people say if they want to keep the, the Hebrew going there. All right, here's the point. Little, too much Hebrew going on here. Here's the point. The name Jesus, Joshua, was the most common name. 
He became the John Doe of his time. He was the Tito Fulano of his time, right? Common man, common job, common family. He was poor and uneducated in the eyes of the world. He was, in every sense, one of us. God in the ordinary world, born in the flesh by a common woman. He even took a common name, but it was a common name with uncommon significance. So in the words of Tim Keller, his name, Jesus, that is salvation is of the Lord, is the name that all other names point to, right? He, he is truly one of us. And there is this sort of remarkable splendor in the ordinary. And do you know why? You know why? Because he can represent us. And why does this matter? Well, the text says that he was given the name Jesus because, look there in verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. But how exactly does he do that? How does he save us from our sins? Now, to answer that question, let me just use a couple of illustrations I got from these guys. Uh, Tim Keller, he says this. He says, imagine that you're in a house. No, better yet, imagine you come to my house. Let's do this personally. You come to my house, and my house represents uh, my perfect kingdom, right? I've worked to create my home exactly the way I like it. So you come over, we're hanging out, and you break my lamp, all right? And by breaking my lamp, you have now disrupted the perfection that is my home, right? It's exactly the way I wanted it. In order, so now my house is not what it was before. So now we have a choice to make in order to restore my house back to its perfection. You can say, Ronnie, I'm sorry. I will pay for the lamp, and you can pay for the lamp. Or option B, I can say, don't worry about it. I'll get a new lamp. In this case, I am paying because I'm absorbing the cost of the lamp. So either you pay or I pay, but someone's got to pay because something has been broken. Now, let's advance the metaphor here. Imagine that that lamp was infinitely precious, and it costs more than all the money in the world, and most certainly more than the money that you have. Now, you can't pay. Option A is off the table, all right? So what do I do in order to restore the house? I have to absorb the cost. I have to absorb the penalty. That is what Jesus does for us. See, we have entered into God's perfect universe and have deliberately broken every beautiful lamp we've seen, right? And now there's this debt that must be paid. Either we pay it with a just punishment or God absorbs the punishment. And that, Trinity, is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus absorbs the just punishment and he saves us from our sins. He lives the perfect life that we should have lived, but we didn't. But then he dies the death that we deserve, but he did it in our place as our substitute. The just punishment that we deserve was put on Jesus on the cross. Now, I know that Jesus was born seven pounds, six ounces in a little hick town and put, laid to sleep in a little feeding trough, but that is not where the story ends, right? That story is going somewhere to a cross. 
So why can Jesus represent us? Well, here's my second illustration. Think about the Olympics, right? So each country can send their athletes from their own country to represent the people. But an athlete from China cannot win a medal for the French. Mexicans cannot win medals for the Canadians. The country's representative is only valid if he comes from that country. So why can Jesus save us from our sins? Why can he absorb our penalty? Why can he represent us? It's because he's from our country. He's from our home. Because he's one of us, you see. That's what Christmas is about. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it makes it really explicit. He says, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man. And the man, Christ Jesus, is who gave himself as a ransom for all. So what does this mean for us this Christmas? Well, first of all, it changes how we think about Christmas, doesn't it? And what's Christmas about? See, Christmas is not a nativity scene. It's not about presents. It's not about a cute little baby. Rather, it's the moment when God became one of us to represent us. And that's why he was given the name Jesus. This helps us understand why we worship him. This helps us understand the specificity of our worship. Remember, Christianity is not private religion. It's not a private experience. Most people are comfortable, quite comfortable, saying, yeah, I love God right? Or, yeah, I go to church. That's comfortable. Or, I try to be a good person. But God came to earth in the form of Jesus. Only Jesus can represent us. And as a result, there's this this unapologetic direction in our worship. It's always to Jesus. We love him. We have faith in Jesus. And if that specificity makes you uncomfortable, then it's probably because you've misunderstood what Christianity is. Jesus affirms that he is God and that there is no other God and that he is the only person worthy to represent us before God on the day of judgment. Now, a second implication for this is this. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ in faith, then Christmas lets you look at the representative without asking him to be your representative. If you don't ask him to be your representative, you are saying to God de facto that you will represent yourself before God. You're saying you will save yourself from your sins. And so you work hard to exhaustion trying to build up your resume so that God will love you and accept you. And you will work and you will work because you will never know if you have done enough. Have you done enough? And this creates an immense amount of pressure an immense amount of exhaustion and anxiety about people who feel like they are trying to approve, uh, earn God's approval will grow. They will grow weary. And if they don't do it, they'll experience incredible self-hatred, right? They'll, they'll feel so ashamed that they didn't live up to the law of God 
And then in the long run, they'll have resentment towards God. That's how it ends. Because God will seem impossible to make happy. I do not want this for you, Trinity. I don't want this for anyone. But if you have directed your affection and your loyalty to Jesus, then Christmas is really good news. It doesn't have to be so angsty, right? If you're a Christian, then you have a representative. So who you really are, listen, who you really are has nothing to do with you, right? Not how much you can accomplish or who you can become, not your behavior, not your good behavior, not even your bad behavior, not your strengths, not your weaknesses, not your sordid past, not your family background, not your education, not your looks, none of those things. Because Jesus is your representative, your identity, your name is firmly anchored in Christ's accomplishments. Not yours, his strengths, his performance, not yours, his victory, not yours. Your identity is steadfastly established in his substitution, not your sin. Oh my goodness, I wish I could look every single one of you in the eyes and make you believe that. Because you would really love him. You would really love the Savior if you believed what I'm telling you right now. Some people will say, you can't say that, Pastor. You need to be good so that God loves you. And I say, no. God does not need my perfection, which I don't have anyway. God needs the perfection of Jesus. Jesus, who saves his people from their sins. Not me, not you. When you believe that, I mean, when you believe that, when, you, when that gets into your bones, it will change everything about you. I hope this Christmas will be different than any other Christmas before any other Christmas you've ever had, even though it's sighted in a lot of sad narratives. My prayer is that we don't lose sight of Christ this Christmas. Christmas is about Jesus, right? The process of getting his name and then the significance of that name that's meant to transform you. Remember, you don't name Jesus. He names you. And he calls you Beloved. You don't manage Jesus, he manages you. And when he does, he will save you from your sins. And if you're like me, you have a lot of sins. So Christmas is a really sweet time. It's a really sweet time. Amen? Amen.